I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. These minor prophets. I was going to change over and do something different. And uh, what's that? Oh, announcements. I'm sorry. Men's camp out meeting. You know, most people can't even pronounce it. And, and whoever preaches out of Zephaniah? I mean, really. You ever heard anybody preach out of Zephaniah? You're going to get to hear a Bible study lesson here on Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah gives you hope. That's what he does. He, he gives you hope. And again, one of those minor prophets, whenever I say that, doesn't mean that they're less than. It means they've got a small book. Uh, one, one writer named Martin uh, Booser, it was 1528, he made this statement. He said, if anyone, anyone wishes all the secret oracles of the prophets to be given in a brief compendium, let him read through the brief Zephaniah. In other words, he's saying uh, oracle means this mouthpiece of God. So if you want to understand what God is trying to say as a whole, read the book of Zephaniah. That's what he was saying. Uh, so there again, you know, I'll give you a little bit of, of uh, incentive to read some of these minor prophets. Zephaniah 3, 8 through 16. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may call call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And look at that. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. I believe that's talking in tongues is what I believe that is. And verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my disperse, shall bring mine offerings. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. I, I, again, look at this. I will leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people. They shall trust in the name of the Lord. doesn't mean you have to be rich to trust in God. And afflicted poor people can trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away the judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not, let not thine hands be slack. In verse 18 it says, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all, the afflict, all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. 
At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and praise among the people of the earth, that I turn back your captivity before your eye, the eyes of the Lord. Your eyes, saith the Lord. Zephaniah 3.17, again it says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over with joy, he will rest in his love, and he will joy over thee with singing. Turn, shake somebody's hand, and you may be seated. You know, you, you look, I, I have, uh, I've made a, a point recently. I've, always, I've talked about it for years, and I'm trying to make a point of my wife even quit getting a newspaper. I made a point, quit, practically quit reading it. I look at Sundays. But I, I, when you look at a headline, and you see it, and you're afraid to read it because it'll depress you. Or that's the way I feel. So I don't, I don't do it. And when you look at the... The social, the economical, and the political atmosphere today. It is real easy to get to a point where you get depressed. And, and you know, you, and looking on all that, I, 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 I'm concerned. There's a concern that I can't help but get involved with this concern. And is it, what, what kind of world is my grandchildren going to find if the Lord tarries? What are they, what are they going to, what kind of world are they going to live in? But with all of that, and one reason, you know, this morning I was thinking of all, all that way, and our hope, our hope, regardless of how you feel, the people that came down here this morning, you realize that your hope does not have anything to do with the political climate, social climate, the economic, it does not have anything to do with that. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. The psalmist said this, he said, For I shall praise Him who is the health of my countenance and my God. In Psalm 42 and 11. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't finish that. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. The only hope I have ever had, ever had, and any of you will ever have, has been in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the only hope for a world that is wallowing in sin. Psychology may offer a cause for neurosis. Law enforcement might restrain the criminals. Social programs may care for the victims, the addicts, and the needy. But Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive sin, who can put the peace of a broken life back together and to turn tragedy into beauty. That is the only one that can do it in Him and Him alone. I don't look to anybody else to solve my problems. I look to Him to be the one that solves my problems. I look to Him to carry me through the hard times. I look to Him for any kind of money problems I have. I look to Him for deliverance of anything any problem I've ever had. I look to Him for everything that I do whether I'm angry, whether I am I have depressed. I look to Jesus and Jesus gives me the answer. Give him a good hand clap of adoration because he is the answer. <laughs> Zephaniah, he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah, the last of the godly kings of Judah. Now, Zephaniah was of a royal lineage. You could, you could actually trace Zephaniah back to his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah. So he was a prophet, but he was in a royal lineage. Now, presumably, this kinship gave him a direct access to the ear of the, of the boy king. 
because Josiah was eight years old when he became king of Judah. So it's possible the prophet had a, a positive spiritual influence upon Josiah, who in contrast to his father Ammon, or Ammon rather, in 2 Kings 21, 19 to 24, he diligently sought after the Lord. He cleansed the land of the idolatry, and he repaired the temple of Solomon. He did everything that he could for his time, but he was the last one of the group to do this. Now, desiring to turn Judah back to monotheistic worship of Jehovah, Josiah, in the 18th year of his reign, he ordered the repairing of the temple. Now, during the repairing of the temple... Hilkiah, the high priest, discovered the book of the law, and he gave it to Shaphan, the scribe, who took it to king's court, and he read it to the king. Now, when Josiah heard the law of Moses read, it said that he rent his garment, and he began to cry out simply because he thought that, that, that Judah had gone so far the wrong way they could never get back to God. This is the way that he felt. So he had the conscience. He had the idea. He had the desire and the conviction in his heart that he wanted to make things right again. And he was concerned that they had gone so far the wrong direction they could never get back. That's the kind of person that you need to look to. That's the kind of person who desires good things from God. And regardless of what everybody else is doing, they're saying, this is the way. Walk ye therein. Because if we don't walk in the right way, we're going to definitely go in the wrong way. There's no standing still. There's no standing still when it comes to serving God. You either go the right way or you're going the wrong way. So it's, it's probable that Zephaniah's ministry greatly influenced the revival that came during Josiah's reign. For the prophet spoke against the same evils that King Josiah purged from Israel. Zephaniah's mention of Assyria and, and omission of, of Babylon provided a time frame for this writing, which would have been around 630 B.C. And he prophesied against Judah and Jerusalem as well as the other nations around them, saying that if they did not repent, they would face the consequences of the judgment of God that was impending. It was going to happen. There was nothing that anybody could do to stop it. It was going to be there. He pronouncement of the day of judgment, he he. he uh, season or in this pronouncement rather he seasoned his sermon with hope that restoration would surely come so he wasn't like one of those that came out this is it's a problem with a lot of people uh, so much in times past with prophecy they would come and they would prophesy judgment but they never prophesied hope to go along with judgment that's one reason why that the gifts of the spirit is the bible says is for the edification of the church yes yes uh, a prophet can stand in the middle of a church service and say that if we don't clean, clean things up, this is going to happen. But if he doesn't finish that prophecy with this, is that if you will turn to me, then I will turn to you. Something of that category. Then that man is not a prophet. Because Jesus Christ, regardless of what, and, and, and Jehovah God, of course they're the same, in the Old Testament, it didn't make any difference what they came. There was always hope that came at the end of it. You have a way of getting out of this. I'll give you a way out. If you will turn to me and repent, and you will be sorrowful for what you have done, then I will turn things around for you. God always does that for us. He always will. Unfortunately, the revival... And during Josiah's reign was short-lived, and soon after, the Babylonians came and destroyed and slaughtered and looted and carried away thousands of captivity or captives to Babylon. The word remnant is an interesting word. Now here, 
here again, if you, if you look, a lot of people, maybe, maybe you don't, but I, I do to some degree, you look at certain words and you get in your mind what you think uh, that word means. And, and most of the time, being that we are negative by nature, we look at the downside of any particular word. I'm leaving a remnant. Actually, the remnant has, has a dual meaning. Two things. Number one, the totality of God's judgment, whether on non-Israelites or Israelites. I'm wiping this thing out. Gone. Totality. Number two, the element of God's grace and mercy. Okay, so it means two things. In some cases, God may have emphasized the complete and total elimination of a people that no trace or remnant would remain after the dust settled. On the other hand, in some cases, God specifically promised that a remnant of his people would remain after the judgment was complete. So God extended mercy to a remnant of people. Wiping out everybody, but I'm saving you. That's grace and judgment. Both cases. And his covenant people had desecrated the holiness of God by adopting the false deities and the wickedness of surrounding nations. God would allow them a share in the doomsday catastrophes along with Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, and Assyria. However, because of his mercy, a remnant of his people would survive. During Noah's day, God was sick of the sin and the days of Noah. So he was wiping out everything, whether it be people or whether it be beast. It didn't make any difference. Animals, people, all of them were going to be wiped out. The Bible says, except Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah and his family found grace, and they were a remnant of the world being completely destroyed. So there was salvation along with judgment that comes with, or comes with the word remnant. So, you know, if God gives, a, gives, us, a, gives us a prophecy in the church, He said, I'm going to kill you all, but I'll save a remnant. You just got to hope that you're the remnant. I think everybody would, uh, would probably start down if that came across and begin to pray, say, God, please let me be a remnant. I don't want to be wiped out. So we discover that remnant language is associated both with judgment and salvation. When God destroyed a, a wicked kingdom, he did not always annihilate everyone within that nation's borders. Instead, the wicked leaders and those under their influence were destroyed without remedy or remnant. And although the righteous remnant might suffer because of the destruction around them, God in his justice spared them. So... Zephaniah began with a generalized pronouncement of judgment upon the earth. But in Zephaniah 1.4, he narrowed the focus to Judah and Jerusalem. This prophecy focused specifically upon individual groups and explained the reason for judgment. Jerusalem, the seat of monotheistic worship of, of Jehovah, had become pagan in their worship. This, this particular area of Zephaniah is... Uh, it really intrigued me. I want, you to, I want you to see this. Their sin was manifold because those who practice, again, false religions, those who practice a syncretistic form of worship, which simply means this. 
One of the best ways of seeing what syncretistic worship is is in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. They took pagan religions and they mixed it with Judaism. That's what they were doing during the days of, of Zephaniah. They were bringing in the pagan gods and they were worshiping them and they were keeping some form of the worship of Jehovah. So they were doing it all. They were covering all their bases just in case they were wrong. Do you realize, do you realize if Zephaniah would pronounce judgment on the nation of Judah as a result of that kind of worship, what is he looking at right now at us? Just, 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 just so you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. I, I, I'm going I'm to take the focus off the, off the Roman Catholic Church because we focus there. But that, that's <laughs> Halloween's coming up, and you know how I feel about Halloween, and you know how I teach about Halloween. But if we was to, to, to celebrate that, that would be that kind of worship, syncretistic. We, we, would be, we would be allowing devil worship on one night when all the rest of the time we worship the one true God. God hates that. Let me, let me, let me, let me get that one step further. You, you think maybe sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit harsh on what, things that I feel, jewelry, whatever it may be. If you go back and you really look at it, you don't have to look at it, you don't have to look at it in, in the Bible. Go look at it in history. See where all of it came from. Jewelry all has a connections to paganism. It all does. It relates to paganism. So, you know, you say, well, Brother Robertson, you know what? Just, well, okay, maybe it doesn't hurt anything, but it certainly is a weight that causes you trouble. Folks, don't you get tired of having to constantly feel that weight that is on you? You can't seem to ever get free, and you can't get the joy of the Lord in your life. Even, you know, joy of the Lord should happen for us even if I'm sicker than a dog. I still should have joy. If, if I'm burdened down and I'm depressed, I still, I still somewhere down inside here there should be joy that can overcome that depression. But if we in any way uh, tolerate within our lives any form of paganism, then we have added if it doesn't send you to hell, it's certainly going to be a weight. And the Bible says to lay aside every weight. And the sin that so easily besets us and run with patience the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So we look to Him, but we, we, we don't need, if I, if I you know, I, I've, taught, I've, I've done this before. It's the best way in my poor, feeble mind to understand this. Uh, when I was diving a lot, and still, I don't do it any, much anymore, but you, you put on a, a wetsuit and you put a weight belt on. That is to get you to the bottom. You know, when you take the weight belt off, and with that wetsuit on, you sink, you, you fly right to the top. Especially if you've got a lot of, of blubber, you know. <laughs> blubber floats. Okay. This, I know you didn't know that, so I thought I'd throw that in. So laying aside a weight means that I'm going to come to the top. You get it? Laying aside a weight sends me to the top. So if you don't think what you're doing is sin, well, it's maybe it's just a weight and it keeps you from getting where you need to be. Is that clear? That clears mud. Good. Good. So, you know, I, I look, especially reading and studying Zephaniah, that's just, 
it just really came to me what God was saying and what God was doing here through the prophet Zephaniah. Uh, and, and it really uh, <laughs> um, it really brought it all out. Some, some denounce God's right to judge, arguing, of course, we always see people like that, arguing that a loving God would never punish mankind in such a, a drastic way. Now, Zephaniah and the other prophets proclaim, contrarywise, Zephaniah likened the punishment of sinners as a sacrifice to the God of justice. You look at Zephaniah 1.8, and that's exactly what he's saying. He specified those who would, who would be punished, and he said the royalty that was clothed in lavish foreign apparel, the violent and deceitful who violated their neighbor's rights, those with secure and careless attitudes, those uninterested in the things of God, merchants consumed with wealth, those who view God as uncommitted to his creation. That one's scary. You see a lot of people in the U.S. anymore that are, uh, you know, if there is a God, he's uncommitted to us. They, They say that he's not committed to us. Folks, listen to me. I don't care where you hear that. I don't care if the devil tries to put that in your mind and somehow you might think that God's not committed to you because of what you're enduring. God is committed to you. And again, I've got to be so careful because I'm going to cross over in Brother Fox's territory. I, he'll be able to follow up tonight with, with this and, and some really good things. Folks, if we don't learn that God is committed to us and trust him in that commitment, we trust him in that commitment. What are you saying? I'm saying this, that if I am walking and, and, and it seems like that every time I turn a corner I face something else, I'm financially uh, bankrupt, I am, I, I am, I, I've got thoughts that I just cannot deal with because they just constantly come at me. Does that mean that God is not committed to me? No, it does not. That means that you need to get down and pray and pray and pray till you break through and realize that God in heaven still loves you and He's right there and the only thing He was waiting for you to do was to get down and and dedicate yourself all over again to Him and commit yourself to Him because He's never lost that commitment. If there's any commitment that's gone, it's His. It's your commitment to Him, not His to you. So He told him. You know, he, he said, I, I, "Judgment," He said, "would strike Jerusalem without delay." Now, this is another thing. Every one of these these minor prophets they make this statement. He said, "Without delay." Judgment's going to strike Jerusalem. It was 25 years later. God's time clock is different than yours. The thing about us, and I think God does this on purpose, it gives you this, this, this judgment. And then 25 years later it comes to pass, but you see, you've forgotten about it. But to him, it's, it's, just, it's just a you know, tick of the clock. But to you, 25 years is a long time. But if you love God, you're going to take that, that, that word that came to you. And if it's 25 years or 50 years coming, the fact remains that it's coming. That means God's committed to you. He was good enough to give you a word. And just because it didn't happen within a day or two or an hour, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There's a lot of people that are backslidden right now because... They thought God was going to do something for them in the next week, and it didn't happen. And they're messed up, losing everything, and and morally bankrupt, and God's still going to do what God said he would do. Uh, 
Zephaniah pointed out certain characteristics of the day of the Lord. Uh, and it is approaching swiftly, and, and it will be horrible. He says, mighty men will cry bitterly. Mankind's continual sin against God will be the cause, and no one will escape apart from repentance and returning, or turning, rather, to God for mercy. That's one fourteen through 18. Judah was called to repent. It was called to repent. Now, when you look at Zephaniah, you're also looking, you're looking at dual, we'll, we'll touch on that in a few minutes. You're looking at dual prophecies here, or a prophecy that has dual meaning. One of them was for Judah and Jerusalem during that, that period of time. The other, the other was still to come during the millennial reign. You can see that if you, if you correlate this with other scriptures, you'll begin to see that some of what Zephaniah was saying is still to come, and it, and it agrees with other scriptures that verify what's going to happen in the future. So we, so we have to look to that and realize that God in his righteous judgment had made up his mind. He had designated the day of punishment, and he would not cancel it. A person's only hope was to place himself in that protecting hand of God. The call to gather yourselves together in, in Zephaniah 2.1 spoke of a solemn assembly for the sake of acknowledging sin and seeking God's mercy. Zephaniah gave three directives for those who believed his message and desired to be saved from the wrath of God. Number one, you seek... <laughs> seeking the Lord needs to be foremost in our lives. We must lay aside everything else. You, listen to me. I know this is hard, and we all, all of us, including me, has a hard time, but the way things are going, folks, we may not be able, none of us will be able to count on health insurance in the future. Life insurance may be something that goes by the wayside. You know, it, it's, we don't know. Everything is uncertain in the future right now. The only certainty is Jesus is coming. That's a certainty. But the thing is that we may be called to that place that's been brought up so many times in the past, times that I've listened to preachers preach about, things that I've preached about, that we are going to be called on, and, and we think that we're living in that time now, and maybe we are to a certain degree. But you stop and think about it. When it comes right down to it, we, I don't believe we'll ever go through the tribulation, but we may get so, it may be so hard out there that we think that we are going through the tribulation. And what that means is however hard that you're going through right now, can you imagine being here when the tribulation does take place? We may lose everything that we've got, and the only thing that we can depend on to protect us is Jesus Christ. And this is what he's wanting us to do now in our thoughts. Do you get it? Do you understand? Our thinking needs to be regardless. That's what trust is. I, I came down here to be prayed for because... I'm hurting so badly, and I've hurt for years in this particular, uh, you know, affliction that I have. You know, if God doesn't touch me, then what am I going to do? You're going to trust Him anyway. You're going to believe Him because there's nothing else out there for you. What happens when the doctor tells you there's nothing more I can do for you? Who are you going to trust then? You know, you have, uh, God wants us to trust Him. And, you know, some of that can be postponed or, or, or put aside if our, our level of trust now would go up. Do, do, you, do you get me? Am I making sense? If we in our mind can trust God 
and, and, and our attitude is, what am I going to, you know, it won't be, what am I going to do when this, this doesn't work any longer, when I don't have this, or I don't have a job that has a health insurance policy. What am I going to do? What am I going to, you know what? I smile and say, well, I've got the best health insurance I could possibly have. I've got the best life insurance that I can possibly have. And the folks, look, don't, don't look up in here and say, well, you've got it together. No, I don't. I want to get there, and I think I've made some big strides in that direction. But, folks, let me tell you, it, it will. God wants our mindset to be that way. You're telling me that I shouldn't have health insurance? No, I didn't say that. I'm saying that no, I don't trust totally in what they're going to give me. If we don't come to that, we're hurting in more ways than one. All right, so he wants it. Number two, he wants us to seek righteousness. We should desire to know and obey God's Word. We need to know it better. We need to follow it better. There is absolutely no mistake that you're going to make when you make God's Word the first thing you look at in the morning and the last thing that you look at at night. There is no mistake that you're going to make when you begin to say, I've got this problem, I'm going to the Bible, I'm going to see if I can find the answer there. I guarantee you that there will be something that will apply to whatever situation you're in. And, and all that I'm saying, that's not easy if you don't know the Word of God. That's why you read the Word of God. That's why you, you, know, you can say all you want. You can say, well, it's very difficult for me to sit down and understand the Bible. It is not difficult to sit down and read it. And even if it, understanding is not coming, you will be surprised at what God brings back to your remembrance when you get in a situation that you need it. When you, when you need something that's in the, book, the, the Bible, you may have read through the whole chapter or chapters or, or books, and you, know, you may have read half the Bible, and you can sit back and say, well, I'm not sure I understood it. But then all of a sudden, hey, I remember reading about that, that same thing. And you go back, and there's your answer. Take the time to hide the Word in your heart. And even if you don't like reading it like a textbook, read it anyway. Read it. Let me give you a little key for this. This is Robertson key. I take in my Bible, and if I don't want to read through, like if I want to, I read the book of Genesis, and I might jump from Genesis to Matthew. What I do is make a little mark above that book when I read it, right at the beginning. Then I go back and realize I've read all this once. Got it? Do that with chapters. And you go back, and when you finally get through, then you realize you've read the whole Bible. Then as you go to read it the second time, you make another little mark there. And you mark it. And that way you can jump from Genesis to Revelations. Genesis, you get all, you know, you get all wonderful and misty-eyed about creation. Then you go to Revelation, and you moan and groan, and woe is me. And then you can go back to, to uh, the Psalms and, and get all joyful and begin to worship. You know, you can just hit every, every emotion if you read <laughs> not everything you want. You can hit it. But if you do that, you'll find out that you don't get bored just reading through one thing after the other. Go to the book of Luke in the first and second chapter and reread them over and over and over again. Let's see if anybody knows what I'm talking about here. That's where he beget this and that beget this and this. Just read that over again. You'll know everything you need to know about the Bible. You get all through the begets. That's the only thing in the Bible that I jump over. <laughs> I, I jump over that. <laughs> you know, after so far, you know, you got two, I think it's two, maybe two chapters of he beget. 
and he beget and he beget. I believe it's Luke. I may be off. All right, moving on. So we have people who, you know, they're, they, 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 they just don't want to believe God could ever do this, but we know he can. And Judah was called to repent. God, in his righteous judgment, had made up his mind. He had designated the day of punishment and would not cancel it. A person's only hope was to place himself in that hand. God help us to place ourselves in his hand and know that I am going to hold on righteousness. I'm going to know that God is my total protection. And the third one was to seek meekness. What is, what is meekness? Give me a hand. What is meekness? Why would God want me to seek meekness? Why would he do that? Anybody? What is meekness? Actually, there's, there's uh, in the, uh, I, and I've used it, I, I've given you the definition of that before. And uh, I'll, I'll give you that definition and you can give me in your words. Meekness is, de- is depicted in the Greek as a uh, royalty or a captain or a general riding in on a horse, stallion. That's how it's depicted in the Greek, a stallion. He's riding in on the stallion. So then, if that's how it's depicted, what does it mean? Go ahead. Controlled power. In other words, what it's saying, too, is that I can't do this on my own. I need someone to control That's what it's saying. That's what meekness is. That's what God wants us to seek. To seek meekness means I seek one to control me. Go ahead. That's right. He was riding. He wasn't walking on his own. The stallion, if anybody's ever around horses, stallions are very difficult to control. And we are that way. Very difficult to control. And if, if he's controlled, that's what he's saying. You know, I, I, want, I want you to give me the control. Realize that you cannot do this on your own. That makes sense? Yes. Let me get over here where I can hear you. Well, that would be in an English version of meekness. Meekness in the Bible, Greek version. The Greek version of meekness. Uh, really, what you're talking about is more, uh, more of a humility thing. Uh, but that, because that is, uh, <clears throat> when I started studying that, was in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. And when I looked at, at that, when I looked that word up, it, it kind of threw me. Because I had the same way of thinking. Go ahead. You don't know her at all. <laughs> Go ahead. She does. 
Yeah, that's good. Go ahead. Controlled. Yeah. Right. Well, I know Mona, Mona's got all those things. You know, she, this past Wednesday, there was a, she had some candy left out and a rat chewed a hole in the corner of it and, and eat some of the candy out of it. And she handed me the candy. She was so nice that she just gave me the candy. Of course, the rat was me. I cut the corner. <laughs> I walked by those, those little Halloween pumpkins Brock makes. They ain't no jack-o'-lanterns, they were pumpkins, okay? <laughs> I love those things. You know, Brock makes them, they got something that always tastes the same no matter what. It was just, it was nice and orange. And, and I thought, man, I was starving to death, hadn't eaten in months, and so I decided to eat one of those. And then I put them back and kind of crumpled it up and see if she wouldn't see it. Of course, I told on myself, and then she found out instantly, but she was so sweet. I found them laying on my desk, so... Uh, you know, that's a meek person right there in control. That's good. You didn't know that? <laughs> Never leave candy out there in the vestibule. It's sinful. <laughs> Definitely sinful. Oh, we are cognizant of this spiritual principle where it goes on and it says, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required, in Luke twelve forty eight, Judah and Jerusalem seemed either to forget or to presumptuously neglect this principle. But God who loved them with an everlasting love would commit them to righteous punishment in order to bring them back to himself. They were his covenant elect. He would not let them go astray without trying to bring them back. Always remember, if you're going through a hard time, difficult time, that does not mean that God is not committed to you. It means God is committed to you trying to bring you back to right relationship. And folks, you know, I told, I told Brother Hill a while ago, I said we're going to get into some of these, some of these nations that had the woes pronounced against them. Think about this with me. One of the nations the Zephaniah said there would be a woe pronounced against it was Ethiopia. Ethiopia brought a million-man army, 300 chariots against Asa. And because of that, God, he held off all that time. Although, again, we go to years. But when this came up, he said, now, he said, I'm going to pronounce judgment on Ethiopia. Ethiopia has not been anything for as long as I can remember, can any of you? Except they had great revival there. But it's nothing. Now, the second part of his prophecy said that Ethiopia in one day would bring sacrifice 
to the Lord. That means that Ethiopia will become great in the millennial reign. Because that was towards the millennial. That they would come before the Lord. But right now it's hard to imagine. What do you see in Ethiopia? Drought. Hunger. Starved people. It, you know, let, let, me, let's, let me just put it this way. We don't like, and if, if I was to bring this up in public somewhere, if someone else were you know, out, out in the world and say that God passes judgment on nations and sometimes they never recover, I would be scorned. I would be, they say everything bad about me that they possibly could. I've heard Pentecost people do it. I've heard preachers say that this has happened because of it. I mean, let, let's just be honest. You know, we look at what happened to uh, Louisiana. We look at the, you know, God brought this out in, not, in some teaching not too long ago. We can't necessarily say that God passed judgment on Louisiana by that, that Katrina. We can't, but on the other hand, we can't say he didn't. And you think about what goes on. Now, again, I'm not saying one way or the other, but I'm saying you think about what goes on, and would God not love them enough to try to break through? And this is the way God does it, whether we like it or not. The Philistines. Anybody ever heard where they found anything concerning the Philistines in archaeology? Anybody? Tell me. They found, they said that, but they, you know, that what I have read is that they can't positively confirm. They knew that Philistines were there, but they can't find a whole lot about them. At one point, they just disappeared. And that's one of the woes that was brought here in Zephaniah, was against Philistia. So, you know, I'm saying that, that these nations that were so great during that time, now you can't hardly find anything about uh, Nineveh. Nineveh repented with Jonah's preaching, but Nineveh went back to being evil again. And that's one of the woes that's pronounced by Zephaniah. You get what I'm saying? Some of these things have not necessarily occurred, uh, you know, to the complete, to complete the prophecy. But a lot of these things are, will be yet to come during the millennial reign of Christ. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish monotheistic faith, and it contained the Temple of Solomon, where all Judah gathered to worship. The privileged people of God knew the greatness of the name of the Lord. They saw the smoke from the sacrifices to Jehovah ascending and daily into the heavens. But still, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who should have been closest to God, lived in opposition to his word. Even the closest of the close, the, the religious leaders who lived near the temple and the handled holy things were corrupt. The law of Moses was all but forgotten. The holy scriptures lay in an abandoned room of the temple collecting dust. This is what they thought of the God that delivered them. That the holy, the holy book, the Moses book, the scripture was laying there collecting dust, had not been read. The temple was in poor condition. They had to, Josiah had to repair the temple because they allowed it to just go, go down. They could care less. I, every time, again, I get into these things, I, I, I begin to see the correlation of the time that we're living in and, and, and the talking about the nations again, looking at our nation and the direction that we've been going. What's going to happen to the U.S.? 
And just because it doesn't happen immediately doesn't mean that 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And you know what? I believe that we will be a third world country. And we're not too far from it right now. We're not too far. We are in the longest recession that we've ever been in. And there's no looking, there's no hope for tomorrow. I mean, it, it doesn't look like this thing no matter what they say. So look at where, where we're going. A great nation, what we have done. But you look at the condition of our country spiritually. Yes, we have great revival. And yes, a lot of what Zephaniah was talking about, there was hope at the end. And I think Zephaniah actually uh, spoke of and prophesied of the Pentecostal revival that has been going on in the last 20 years. And, and I'm, when I say that, I'm not talking about just in the U.S. I'm talking about a worldwide revival that has been going on for over 20 years. And he prophesied of that. So yes, maybe as a nation, economically we've gone downhill, morally we've gone downhill, but in the midst of that, in the midst of that, and this Zephaniah began to, to, to preach or to prophesy hope. He said, if you come and repent, I can turn all this around. And it's the same. We have got people that have come and repent. We've got people, um, uh, Lori was telling me about something, a, a situation, someone she knew that was involved in uh, uh, social work um, and, and she said that, I mean, she didn't give any names or anything, but she just, she called Laura, she knew Laura, and she, she told her, she said, there have been people, she said, that I have counseled with, there's been a part of your church that said that, that are talking about God over and over and over, and told them how great things was when they were serving. This is telling a woman out, out there. Are telling, and you're hearing it all the time. People come to you. I told you what happened at camp. I'm in the middle of Canada in the wilderness, and people are coming and talking about God. Yes, it's on their mind. So in the midst of all this turmoil and things are not getting any better, you know what? People are, are, are used to having short-term problems in our country. Recessions, this kind of thing, but they last for a year. They last for six months. This one has gone on for years. And now all of a sudden they realize we're not coming out of this. And if we're not coming out of this, then what does that mean? And again, we see the, the wars, you know, the Syria business. And, you know, they're, they're saying that they're going to, everybody, U.S. is backing down and, uh, from Syria and they're getting rid of their chemical weapons and all this, this business. But come on, we know how long that'll last. It won't last at all. And it will, it'll come back. It always does. We are at the end times. And that's why we need to push the way we've never pushed before. I don't want to be a part of it and look in the condition of our churches who know truth. I mean, we can look at how so many things have been let down, let go, and, and it's wrong. God help us not to get to this point. You know, I believe in judgment, whether you do or not. I believe in it. And what we call judgment a lot of times is chastisement. And, and that's what God does. You know, I, the, the, the two terms are actually interchangeable in the Greek. Chastisement happens. And he does that so that he won't have to condemn us later on. God, help us to, to look at it and consider it and to know that we do have a hope. Our hope is to stay close to God like we've never stayed close to God. To keep ourselves on the altar and not let our joy slip away from us. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Keep that joy. I don't care what you have in your pocket and what you don't have in your pocket. If you got a dime or you got $10 million, if you got $10 million, leave me one, will you, please? You know, and <laughs> we'll get this thing all taken care of. But I'm saying, folks, we've got a hope. Don't ever forget that. Stand with me if you would. You know, living for God, 
is one of the greatest joys of my life. Now, I'm talking about just me. It's one of the greatest joys of my life. When I came to God, uh, you know, I had the same, I, I think next Sunday night I'm going to preach on looking through the eyes of majesty. And, and I, one of the things I think a sinner sees in us, is, or he should see in us, is he should see the beauty of our worship. He should see the beauty of our countenance. He also, if he's around any length of time, will see the pain that some people endure when they come to God. Repentance is a death. And repentance will cause pain because there's a severance sometimes between people that you've always associated with. There's a severance from a lifestyle that you were always a part of. You know, the Bible speaks about the pleasures of sin for a season. There is a season, but that season ends. So there's pain along with that. But along with that pain comes the next one, and that is the glory that you receive when you finally get an understanding and you can see through the eyes of the Lord, when you can perceive things the way Jesus does. You know, I, I, I'm going to preach this, and you'll get to hear it again, but the only thing that clouds God's vision is one, there's one thing that clouds it, and that is he cannot see through his own blood. The only thing, the mercy seat, he could not see the broken, the, this animal sacrifices, he could not see the broken law that was in, in the Ark of the Covenant. And when his blood's applied to us, he doesn't see anything that we've ever been. Isn't that great? You know, I, I think if there's anything you can cloud God's vision in with that, God help me to cloud your vision more. Because every time I repent, I need a fresh application of that blood. Mm. God help us to see it and understand it. Let's raise our hands. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. Pray that you keep your hand upon each and every one. Let them come tonight early to pray. Let them seek you with all their, their heart and their desire, Jesus, above all else. I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.